Hey everybody, you're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by Iron Company. Okay, so today is part two of the Forrest Grump, Forrest Gump of strength sports. Oh yeah, um, he is Forrest Grump. If, well, yeah, that's an easy slip to make. So the uh, we've got Forrest Gump of strength here, and um, we last week we did part one. And this is now part two. So just I just wanted to do a quick recap of some of the things we covered uh, in the first one. But you want to listen to that one because it's a good one. Marty, you were born 1950 into the equivalent of the Gracie family, but for strength. Well, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of hyperbole there. Uh, that's not, I mean, it was just like for, for some crazed reason, you know, I'm a, a relatively average guy born into, you know, middle America in 1950. And through this weird set of circumstance, I continually found myself thrust into these situations where I'm dealing and learning with uh, turned out to be Hall of Fame strength athletes in uh, both Olympic lifting and uh the then just new sport of powerlifting. So, uh, you know, I was born in 1950, suburban Washington, D.C. In 1961, at age 11, I started weight training and things escalated because I got drawn into, uh, as it turned out, geographically, I was in an area where there were a lot of Olympic weightlifters. Right. And it was a big deal. Uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, Jimmy. Yep. And Jim's, Jim's uh, around the corner. He's in from College Park. Well, actually, well, you, you're from what? Beltsville? Adelphi. Adelphi, Adelphi yeah. So <clears throat> Jim is also from, yeah, he's from PG County. I was in Montgomery County, but adjacent counties. But it was uh, uh, also Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and York. Those three areas were strength training hotbeds, uh, particularly, yeah. particularly York. York was the center of the uh, Olympic lifting universe for 50 years. Yeah, and, and you went far from there. Yeah. I don't know. What's that? 90 miles from us, Jim? Maybe something like that. Not far at all. Yeah. So um, anyway, I got I got drawn in with these guys. And by the time I was 17, I'd won a national title and set national records as an Olympic weightlifter. So I got drawn into this ever-widening circle of adult lifters saw all the great York lifters of the late sixties, the mid, the mid sixties to the late sixties. That was a hell of a scene, Jim. You should have been there. I mean, they would have like either the national Olympic lifting championships or the national powerlifting championships on Saturday. And then Sunday they'd have an all day event in a park. Right. That was and a they'd, picnic, right? Yeah, picnic. And they'd have a pavilion and they'd have, well, now we're going to have Ernie Pickett come up and he's going to try to clean and press a 250-pound dumbbell. So like, how many people were at the picnic? Like, you know, yeah, quite a few, man. Quite a few. I mean, like hundreds. Yeah. So it was a big draw even back then? Yeah. It was like people, people going to Mecca, you know? Uh, right? Well, for the Olympic, uh, I tell you, for the Olympic lifting or the powerlifting national championships back then, uh, it was held at the York uh, – I guess it was the York High School Auditorium, um, 2,000 people. Wow. And they'd, and they'd fill it. 
Mm. Nowadays, nowadays you have a national championships. You have, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of, anyway, we don't want to get into what nowadays, but so, uh, I came up in that environment and there was a power center, Gonzaga high school in Washington, DC, which is very upscale Catholic high school. But that was the, the epicenter for Olympic weightlifting in Washington, DC. And I had an open invitation to train there for free. So, and they had a great setup. They had four platforms set up and, you know, Saturday was the big day. So you'd go in there and you'd see like, you know, Mickey Collins and Bob Lancaster from Howard University. Uh, you might see Pete Miller, you know, uh, the Virginia guys, uh, you know, some of the Baltimore guys might be in, you know, it all depends. The big event was in 1968, April, they held the region regional championships there and they brought in Bednarski and Bill March as guest lifters. And in my high school <clears throat> with me hanging out with the guy backstage, I saw Bednarski set his first world record when he cleaned and pressed 451 weighing yeah. 240, right? Yeah. So, high yeah. School. yeah, yeah. It just so, happened did, to you be see, did you ever see Bednarski? No, just I, I've only read articles that you've written, and, and Starr has talked about him when, when he was alive. Yeah, he uh, six. Uh, imagine six foot two and probably uh, a lean two hundred and forty pounds. Uh, quick, you know. This was a guy at six foot two. He was setting Olympic weightlifting records in the hundred and eighty-one pound class. Right. Now, over time, he increased his body weight to 240. So, and again, at each stage. Uh, so after the after the Gonzaga regional meet, two months later at the Nationals held in York, we saw Bednarski put on the greatest performance ever by an American super heavyweight when he cleaned and pressed 456, right? And then he cleaned, he uh, snatched 340, and he cleaned and jerked 486 to break the world clean and jerk record. Boom. Wow. And as he cleaned and jerked, as he spiked the jerk, there was a tremendous thunderstorm went on. And it was dramatic because this crack yeah, of man. lightning and this thunder hit just as Bednarski spiked the world record. And the place went crazy. I mean, it was a standing room only auditorium. And I'm like in the fifth row because I'm with the DC guys and they're wired. Right. And it was like, a rock show. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Um, saw Paul Anderson very early on, probably what, 15, 16 years old. I mean, that was uh, profound. How, you know, how many guys get to see Anderson? Uh, yeah, you were um, lucky. Squatted 905, press 420, and just another kind of throwaway exhibition. So these were the formative experiences. And um, uh, when the seventies hit, you know, I had uh, wanderlust. I was not, uh, I had no interest in going on to, to college. Secondary education was like the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to hitchhike across the country. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, it was the 60s. Well, actually, it was the, I left home in 1968. So, yeah, I lived in a commune for two years, Washington, D.C., <laughs> 1724 S Street. Oh yeah, it was a great time, man. The best thing, the best thing about that commune is that you could lift weights in the basement, right? And that what yep. you said. Yep, the subterranean basement. Unusual, unusual commune. 
You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Also, it was my first experience lifting on acid. Nice. <laughs> That's a whole nother show, huh? Wow. <laughs> yeah, did quite well, actually. Um, so, anyway, so... It melted, a bar melted in your hand. Did you... Uh, uh, one one quick funny... One quick... Yeah, actually. Uh, uh, one quick funny story, though. Uh, one of the guys that lived in the commune was named uh, Stuart Cullen. <clears throat> Stuart actually took an interest in my training. All, all the guys who lived in, all the people who lived in the commune, they either were Corcoran Art Institute students, mainly. Uh, so it was kind of an art house. Uh, I had a friend named Matt Green. He got me into the house. They felt that they needed a lumpen proletariat, agro-American to kind of round out their... Um, elitist tendencies so yeah. i was drafted to come in and put some realism into the commune <laughs> so that's what i did and um the women were beautiful and the guys were all beta and it was just like a wolf in a sheep pack <laughs> so we lifted and i was the cook in the commune and that's how i kind of made my bones because I could, you know, man, I made some killer mac and cheese and, you know, things that could stretch the budget. Yeah. And, uh, again, none of the college kids really knew their way around a kitchen. I've been, uh, my father was a widower. So my brother and I were, we were like raised by wolves as my wife likes to say. So we fended for ourselves. I learned to cook very early on. Now, Granted, it was opening up a can of Dinty Moore's beef stew, right? But you, you, you learned. We learned our way around the kitchen, which later helped us with our nutrition. Always were comfortable in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. always have been comfortable. Well, you didn't have a choice; you had to. Uh, but I, I grew to love it, and I grew. I mean, it, it's another creative outlet. I'm a creative guy. I'm a mm. writer. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I'm, a, you know, cooking is another creative athlete, uh, creative outlet. Yeah. So, uh, in the commune, one one funny quick story though is they in 1969 they had something called the inauguration, which is when Richard M. Nixon was inaugurated, and they had a series of parties. So the counterculture, the yippies. Uh, had a massive counter demonstration on the mall. They had this big, huge tent. They had uh, all these great rock bands playing. It was a free thing. Uh, so I was with my friend, Stuart Cohen, who was my, he had taken on the role as my weightlifting coach and we got busted. Stuart was wearing a, like an army jacket that you get from, uh, uh, yeah, like a, so Stuart's wearing this thing and these, these cops were nasty. They were undercover cops. It was very uh, uh, confrontational back right. then. So they leaped out on us and said, yeah, we're going to get this guy because he's, uh, according to Section 26, Subchapter C, He, you in the military, you're not supposed to be wearing this. Uh, so it was a harassment bust. But still, they're going to take him downtown and they're going to throw him into jail and they're going to make us pay money to get him out. So what they didn't know was that Stewart's dad was Wilbur Cohen, and he was the Secretary of Agriculture <laughs> under Lyndon Johnson. So they took Stewart to the D.C. Central Police lockup, and they booked him in. And Stewart was a wise ass. He was just a wise, wise So 
they're processing him. So we get the word to Wilbur, and Wilbur shows up with Edward Bennett Williams. No way. As his attorney. And he said, uh, I'd like to get my son out. So I don't know. They had the DC. Yeah. Well, he wasn't the owner. He wasn't the owner of the Redskins back then. He was just the head of Washington, D.C.'s leading law firm. So. Right. So Wilbur showed up with Edward Bennett Williams. I said, I need to get my son. So Stewart was in the in the cell by himself. They had him in solitary. So they had the uh, one bed with a mattress on it. So when they came to get him, he scooted underneath the bed and they have, um, you know, the wire mesh that the mattress sits on. Yeah. Yeah. He clawed in with his hands and his toes and he pulled himself up. So when they looked in the cell, (laughs) there was nobody in there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They thought he escaped. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they didn't know if they did in wrong cell and there's Wilbur Cohen and Edward Bennett Williams. And same, they, uh, we can't find your son. Same. Where's my son? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so anyway, it got resolved. But as you could imagine, yeah. that, that's the kind that's of pretty funny. Uh, that's the kind of stuff we ran into down there. Uh, so I had to split that scene. It was just too too intense. Too many hard drugs. Too many riots. Too many. Too much heroin. Too much shooting. Too much. A lot of you know. Black Panthers. I mean, it, it was wild times. I was um, hanging out with uh, Chubb and Perry, and you know all the the Black Panther guys. It was just not a not a good scene. So I went to Oregon, right? Myself and Don Del Rio, and I, I actually we wrote about that. I think. Yeah, it's on. Can we write about that, JP? When I talk about. Oh yeah, Pinkett. it's on there. It's a great story. Oh yeah, look. Searching for Ken Patera. Yeah, yeah. We actually, I actually ended up in in uh, San Francisco in uh, I guess that was December 1969, and uh, we the guy that we were staying with, they go, he goes, "Hey, you want to go to Altamont? It's a free Rolling Stone concert." And no I said, way. Yeah, and I said, "Nah, uh, yeah, I can't. I want." Oh. Yeah. So anyway, so that was uh, that that kind of so I ended up in Portland and went to uh, tried to get into Sam LaPrinzi's gym, which was the gym in Portland for serious lifters. And Sam had just banned Olympic lifting because of Ken, because Ken kept dropping the weight. Um, So, uh, you know, we kind of vegetated in, in Portland for a couple, three years. Great town. Uh, I really like the Pacific Northwest. Either you guys spend any time up there? Never been. Yeah, Never just been. briefly. It's beautiful. Yeah, and the people are very serene. I could have, mm. I could have stayed in Portland. I, I mean, it was just kind of a that kind of a kind of a laid back kind of environment. But uh, ended up back in the East Coast for a lot of reasons. And took up martial arts and had a guy right in the neighborhood named Robert Smith. Very interesting guy. Bob was. That was the Tai Chi guy, right? Yeah, he was actually what they call the Chinese internal martial arts, which is Tai Chi, Bagua, and Xing Yi. Mm Of whom Jet Li is a master. Jet Li is a master of the Chinese internal martial arts. You'll see him do this weird stuff in some of the movies. And that's that's either a Bagua or Shingy move. Most people don't recognize it because it's so um, exotic. Sure. 
So this guy was teaching this, but he was an interesting cat. This was in Bethesda, Maryland. And he was a, he'd been a CIA agent what? in Formosa. And he spoke fluent Mandarin. Uh, and so he was over there infiltrating, working with against the Chinese communist Mao Zedong. And while he and he was a fighter, he was a judo guy. That was his original uh, martial arts. He picked up all the internal arts from the all the the uh, the great internal fighters that had fled China when the communists took over, and they all ended up in uh, Taiwan now, Formosa back then, right? So he studied all these guys, and he brought back to this country Chen Man Chung who's considered the, the leader of the Yang short form Tai Chi. He's the, the, the Chung was the, I don't know, the John Coltrane of Tai Chi, right? He was the, the man. And Bob Smith was his senior, I don't know, Western student, I guess, right? And Bob really helped Chung's message get, and really, it, it he started the the whole Tai Chi explosion. There was no Chai, Tai Chi in America before Bob Smith. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, he 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 brought it here, um, and he never made a nickel off it. He would run free classes on Saturday morning uh, on Tai Chi, and then on Thursday at Pachatsky's dance studio in uh, Bethesda, they'd have Bagwan Shingi classes, which I attended for five years. So I was going twice a week studying under Bob Smith in the Chinese internal martial arts. At the same time, I was training with Hugh Cassidy, the world heavyweight powerlifting champion. You so, had the best of both worlds. Huh? Well, it was odd because it was the hardest of the hard with Cassidy and the softest of the soft with Smith. But they yeah. were both, they would talk to each other through me. They both, uh, the Chinese, like in Tai Chi, they have strong ideas about root right they're always talking to tai chi about root about sinking well right. that was profoundly interesting to to uh cassidy because in his squatting right he's like oh and the deadlifting anything you're on your feet oh okay we're you know and in tai chi they have very specific about where your weight is on your foot at a certain point in time and you know cassidy was like okay well yeah. And Smith was interested in, in, in where Cassidy felt he was most powerful. What portion of the foot, right? That kind of stuff. Right. So this went on back and forth. They never met, but they, should they, have. they kind of met through me. And, uh, you know, I was sort of the amalgamation and took in both of their um, strategies. And again, it's the, the same old thing. If you, if you want to improve your art, at some point you have to go outside your art. Right? Yeah, but there you, you are once again stuck right in the middle of these two great people, the best at what they do. And there's already stuck right in the middle. Another gumpism. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, yeah. Did, you, did you have, Marty, did you have the, the wherewithal to know that you were in the presence of these innovators, of these ground floor guys? Uh, yeah, and not really, because at the time, powerlifting wasn't that big of a deal. 
Powerlifting, uh, I was with, let's say I worked Cassidy in the mid-70s to 1980. You know, powerlifting had just really kind of been invented. I mean, it was right. a, a new sport. There wasn't a lot of history to it. No one was like, oh, no, yeah, this, this is great. And right. in the martial arts world, nobody knew about Chinese internal martial arts. They, all they knew about was Zhou Enri karate. No one bothered me. Yeah, remember hey, that? I remember that commercial. And that and Joe and Ree was from my neighborhood. His original studio was in Kensington, Maryland, which is yeah, they had the, the kids where they the yeah. were uh, a girl and a guy and a girl and a boy, and they were the, like that. that was his kids. Yeah, and the girl goes, nobody bothers me either. You know what? I was trying to I was trying to look that commercial up on YouTube the other day. I couldn't find it. But why? Why? Yeah, man. Because crazy. it's so old, and I remember it, and I just wanted to see if it was on there. I couldn't find it. He must have made a killing. He was the only game in town. You know where I went? I went to Tompkins Karate in Langley Park. He was a Maryland guy. My dad knew him, and that's where I took my my lessons. But June Reed was all over the place, man. Oh yeah, yeah. and it is a, there's another gumpy thing. I knew all those guys when they were just started out. So anyway, Smith was the real deal. Where kind of Joe and Ree was kind of a commercial, uh-huh. you know, thing. And uh, you know, so uh, this is all formulated to me. I'm still a young guy. I'm you know, I'm in 1979. I'm 29. Yeah, right. I published my first article with Cassidy. It was a collaboration. We, um, he, he was a pub, uh, both Smith was highly published. Bob Smith had, has got probably 15 books out. He did a book with Don Greger called the Asian martial arts, which was considered the premier book book that brought martial arts to America after the second world war. Um, so Smith was a highly thought of author. He helped me in my writing, right? Cassidy was considered the best writer, maybe in the history of powerlifting when he took a mind to do it. He wrote a series of three articles with me where he co-authored in order to launch my career. There's a Gumpian thing for you. So, Marty, at 29 years old, you're, you're immersed in all these different things. I mean, are you starting to get it? Like, hey, you're 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 starting to really uh, find yourself involved in these incredible things through time and history, or you're just kind of you're 29 years old. You're just kind of going through, going, hey, you know, some of this stuff is pretty cool, but you're still not realizing what's going on. You're just pushing forward. No, I was never that way. It was always fanatical with me. I mean, <clears throat> I knew what was going on. That's why I sought these guys out. Yeah. Right. I. I, I I knew Cassidy for 10 years before I started to actually train with him. Uh, he had seen me. I'd seen him. I, I'd sat with him, but I didn't, you know, I'd been with him before, but I hadn't, hadn't trained under him. Right. Right. He was Hugh. He was a god. He was huge Cassidy. Mm-hmm. I didn't start training under him. He saw me. I decided to lift at a local novice meet on a whim. And he saw me and he said, hey, kid. Uh, you should come train with me. That's all I took. I said, you got it, man. I don't care where what you're time living. I'm, what I'm time here. Do I need to be there. Yes, yeah. sir, coach. And any man that eats 11 sandwiches inside of one day is I'm a big fan of. No, within four hours. <laughs> yeah, that was, man, one day? Are you kidding me? One day? That's lunch. 
That's that's a lot. <laughs> the thing that the thing the best part of that story is he opens up the cooler. Yeah, there's eleven sandwiches, but there's a whole pie. Oh yeah. Oh well, we, we all right. We should take tell tell a bit of the story when Cassidy. Uh, Powerlifting has a, has an element of it that's a little bit akin to sumo wrestling, yeah. in that sumo wrestlers try to force their body weight upward. Well, yeah. most powerlifters, when they get into the sport, the first thing they realize is that they're thin in relation to their height in terms of muscle. If you look at great lifters, regardless of the weight class, they're all short and thick. Right. I mean, they can be six foot three. And thick, you just got to weigh 440. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is what the strong men are nowadays. So, yeah. to be successful at powerlifting, you need density of muscle in relation to height and inches. Okay. All the great lifters have muscle density in relation to their height. You don't have skinny powerlifters that are great. Now, coincidentally, the greatest. Olympic weightlifter of all time, in my humble opinion, is Yurik Vardanian. Now, he, at 181 pounds and 5'9", snatched 402 and cleaned and jerked 500. Mm. He don't look, he looks like a high school science teacher. <laughs> we, well, just sure, posted, we just posted a great article. That you did on him too on the website. The guy, the guy doesn't look like he could deadlift four hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Physically. So, what what does that tell us? It tells us that in order to be maximally explosive, you don't have to be muscularly dense. Powerlifters are different. That's absolute strength. Absolute strength mm-hmm. is massive payloads for short distances with no concern for duration. We don't care how long it takes. There's no brownie points awarded for doing it extra quick. Explosive strength is different. Explosive strength is you have a, a maximum velocity with a moderate payload, right? 400 pounds ain't 800, right? A 400-pound clean and jerk is not an 800-pound squat. There's a different muscular effect you're in the one you're using you're taking 800 pounds you're you're doing it maximally for a short distance that creates a huge inroad which creates muscle and size you if you're explosive they they don't have a negative in olympic lifting there's no negative it's all concentric there's no eccentric ever right okay so they have the the speed, but they don't have the bulk. And then the third category is, of course, um, strength endurance, which you know that's that's you know, that, a completely different type of physique. So, getting back to the original point is when in 1972 they dropped the press. It was an easy transition for me to morph into powerlifting, but I knew that my density per height. I'm five ten. And lifting in a 198-pound class, I am so skinny. <laughs> there's no way I can be competitive in yeah, college. Just th- there's no I, way. I was, just, I was just thinking because when I started powerlifting, I realized that too. Oh, I got to get a lot heavier. I got to get bigger. I don't know if it was an article I read by you, 
you quoted Cassidy about eating your way through sticking points. Yeah, so yeah. I went, yep, yep, I went yep, from yep. two two forty to two eighty in four months, and by in twelve months I was three twelve. Oh my God! And and how tall are you? You're tall, right? You're yeah, oh yeah, five nine on a, on a great day. Uh, you know. Three twelve. You've said this before. I gotta see a picture of what you're looking like at three twelve. I got videos. I got videos of me bent over rowing five eighty five at three twelve. I gotta see that because my belly was hanging down so far. But I was forty six pants. I'm a thirty four, thirty six right now. Um, I, you know, I was miserable. But when you put that bar on your back after you gain another five pounds, everything feels light. Yeah, right. you know, everything feels good at the gym, but outside the gym, you're screwed because you start to develop uh-huh. sleep oh, I apnea. When you go to the mall, yeah, yeah. I used to go to the mall and they'd have those benches, and I would walk from bench to bench and sit down. <laughs> I wasn't going to burn too many calories. I'd work too hard to put this weight on. Yeah, it's right. tough. tough again, again, very akin to a sumo wrestler. Yeah, right. No question. You're I love forcing a lot like your body weight up, forcing your body weight up, forcing your body weight up. Now. What what the great lifters find, like like Kowalski, for instance, is Kirk pushed his body weight up to three hundred pounds, but it was a doughy three hundred pounds. He only achieved true greatness when he cut back to two forty two, and then went back up to two seventy five. That's when he yeah. got hardness and the density yeah. that that everybody sees and goes, "Oh my God, yeah. look at that guy!" And yeah. he's only five seven, it, so yeah. On a good day. On yeah. a good day. And, th- and that's true. And when I got smarter with my training, my I was strongest at, you know, 270 versus 312, you know, when I when I learned more. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, f- fat helps with leverage, but it doesn't actually lift the weight. No. Right. So, uh, all right. So, just to bring my this portion of my tale to an end, so by the end of the seventies, um, I'm I'm doing good. I've got uh, I'm trainer to Hughes. I've got great training partners, Marshall Pack and Joe Ferry. Uh, that was the core. We'd have guys like Dan Pinkston come in. We'd have a lot of guys come into Cassidy's and train with us. Uh, but consistently, there was myself, Joe, Marshall, and Hugh. Um, was there was there like a separate entrance? Yeah, there was a basement. Yeah, there was a basement, okay. en- a basement entrance at the back of the house. Up there cooking dinner, and you guys are trumping. Uh, uh, Barbara was totally cool. She was. Um, yeah. She was very friendly. She enjoyed uh, company. She she enjoyed the real men. Uh, she had great humor, great sense of humor. She was a yeah. she was German. She was a German war, war um, when he was in the army in Germany. He married her. Oh. Wow. So, uh, yeah, no, they were, they were, it was a great, uh, place, but eventually we just outgrew it. We got too strong for it. I mean, yeah. uh, we were, I told the story about this is, is <laughs> you never had an Olympic weightlifting set. He had like six foot exercise bars with, I mean, it, I mean, it was crude. We didn't have yeah, he made the ball. Well, the bar was like something you got from Montgomery Ward's. That instead of five feet, it was six feet. Okay. Right. But it was a solid. Pe- I mean, there was no revolving sleeves or anything. I mean, 
Oh, right. man, when you got an Olympic bar, it must have been like driving a Rolls Royce, man. Oh, yes, exactly. And it was like, ooh, we're so strong yeah. now. But right? I think that was Hugh's whole thing to train so primitively at home. When you guys went to a meet and competed, you yeah. could just kick yeah. ass yeah. because yeah. you had all the great equipment. Plus, as he said, you know, we said, everyone said, uh, how come you would, he would routinely squat and deadlift 50 pounds more and bench press 25 pounds more in competition than he did at training. And they asked him one time, I said, why is that? And he goes, people. Yeah, he had an audience. He had to do well. Uh, When people were at that, when he was at the competition, he'd like, whoa, everybody's looking at me. But, right. but Marty, it was so primitive over there. I mean, Hugh, Hugh was a welder, so he would cut his own plates, right? Oh, my God. We had so the, one the, would say 50 pounds pound on plate. it. No, no. One said chalk. 102. No, one said 102.125, and the other said 98.75. Right. Okay? Between the two of them. But, but then. And they were you, jagged. They had jagged edges, and they never left the squat. Yeah, they were, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to squat, you had to squat with 235. Right. Yeah, yeah you guys well, no had to all get your tetanus yeah. shots. No, before there was no 135. <laughs> no one's untaken those. If you tried to take those plates off the bar, probably cut your hands. But but you were telling me right. you guys would you guys got so strong that you loaded up these six foot bars. You didn't have any more room. Yeah. You were hanging yep. coat hangers. Correct, with dumbbells dumbbells hanging off the end of the coat hangers. And you had to time it so when you hit the bottom, the rebound, whoa, you got the upstroke. Because if you hit it the wrong way, the 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 bells would drag. Yeah, the whip, the bells would drag you to the bottom. That's a heck of a way to create whip on the bar. So you're at at 1979, but isn't it in 80 you went to Chalet? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, let's get into Chalet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark had um, Mark was an interesting dude, man. He he was an extremely good athlete to start with, and is a Temple Hills, Maryland guy, football guy. Could have played at University of Maryland. Yeah, he couldn't quite get it together with the with the grade thing. Um, lift. He he did stay in Maryland long enough to lift at the collegiate nationals. I think as a freshman. Yeah. And that's the famous picture where he's pulling the 800 and he's got veins popping out all over him. Yeah. He pulls the 800 to win the collegiate nationals and they turn him down two to one. Ugh. Oh yeah. They said, ah, the bar stalled. And we were like, stalling is no, it's only stopped. As long as it doesn't go down. Oh, it was a, yeah, it was almost a fist fight at the collegiate nationals. I mean, it was an ugly scene. So, uh, but, Larry Pacifico, the nine-time world champion, happened to be at the collegiates, and he saw Chalet, and he said, hey, kid, you're incredible. He said, if you would like an apprenticeship with me, you could move to Dayton and study under me, the nine-time world champion. And Mark's like, "Uh, okay. Um, So Mark moved to Dayton. Now, in a very kind of a cool story, Mark was so boneheaded that – even back then, so stubborn. I loved him for this. So he's taken to Dayton, and they gave him a job as a manager of one of Larry's gyms. I forget what they called Health Time or Lifetime or something. Anyway, he had a series of gyms, and he Mark was put in charge of one of them. And later, Mark worked at the warehouse 
Uh, they had a, a warehouse for the Larry's products. Larry did lifting belts, squat suits, shoes, you know, that kind of stuff. So Mark's out there and he goes to train with the nine time world champion and he goes, that's okay, Larry. I've kind of got my own thing going. <laughs> and Pacific goes like, what? Three twenty-year-old kid and she's like, "Yeah, I've kind of got the training thing figured out, Larry." But thanks for the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was it. And Mark had he had he had this strategy that uh, he hatched it. I don't know when he was born or something. And it was he would work up to a single rep in the squat, the bench, the deadlift, and that's it. I quit. And he'd do that. He'd work up to the, in the squat and the bench would work up to a single on Monday. The deadlift, he'd work up to a single on Thursday. No back off sets, no curls, no ab work, no name and exercise. He didn't do it. Where did he get that from? Did he just do what he I felt? I, I, think it, I, I don't know. I think it was like in his DNA because no yeah. one I ever else knew. And Mark Dimmock was his uh, contemporary, and Mark didn't train like that at all. Mark yeah. had a much more Cassidy-like uh, approach. Mark, but Chalet just had this thing, and he always talked about recovery and being fresh and talk like that. And we said, "You're just such a lazy bastard," you know. And it, and then twenty years later, we're reading Charlie Francis talk about uh, the rested effort, and <laughs> all the stuff, all the stuff he was saying. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Charlie Francis is going, yeah, that's the way we train our sprinters. And Chalet was taken off 14 days prior to the competition in the squat and the deadlift and 10 days uh, in the bench press. We would do nothing. So for two weeks before the world championships or the national championships, he ain't lifting. Was anybody he else lifting like that at the time? <laughs> No, well, we no, no one ever before. We would take fourteen in the or ten in the deadlift, I think, but the rest was a week, I think. Because uh, you know, you feel you feel great. Mark opened it up. I think Eddie. I think Mark opened up a lot of guys' eyes about that, and they 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 started putting a lot more rest, particularly if yeah. they had had an intense cycle. If you've got 12 successful weeks under your belt, you want a little break before you go into the Nationals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're... You don't, you don't want, if, if, you, if you just set PRs on Saturday, you don't want to have to lift in the Nationals next Saturday. No, no. After the meeting, you know, over. people don't understand, pulling 800, squatting, it's like a, it's like a car wreck. Yeah, it's like a car strong, wreck. Man. Yeah. When you're that strong. That, Marty... Uh, after so, the meets, well, I'm really sorry. After after the meets were over, uh, is there a certain time during the year he would just take a few months off and rest? Yeah, until the next meet. <laughs> until the, until twelve weeks before. Correct. Oh, man, that's incredible. He did Dude. a lot of. He would do a lot of tanning in between. Yeah. <laughs> well, I he mean, just tanning, to, so he had a tanning bed. That's crazy. What to, I like. What I know. I know. If you read Purposeful Primitive, <laughs> the best part that I, you know, the part I like the best about the whole chalet thing is how you describe the gym, how we, how you oh, yeah. had all different walks of life 
you know, you had cops, you had criminals, you had the oh. biggest drug dealer in the D.C. Maryland area. You had oh, uh, yeah. And, and what would they have to do when they walked in? Well, okay. So we had guys that later got their own episodes on America's Most Wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the whole thing, man. One of my training partners was an a deep, deep, deep undercover cop in, uh, man, the wild, wild west of, of southeast D.C. He went to jail for 20 years. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I stopped a machine gun sale one time between, anyway, you know, I mean, on and on it goes. Uh, yeah. they, they had a gun bin because they had thefts of firearms and... So if you came in and if you were a cop or a criminal, you're expected to pass. You, you weren't supposed to keep your piece in your bag. Right. And, and you especially weren't supposed to store it in the, the little tiny locker room that, that we had. Um, right. So that got passed across under a towel and Buck or Mark would put it in the slot and you could retrieve it. And other than the family, I was the only guy allowed behind the counter. So you didn't have anybody going back there right. messing with your stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it was uh, it was a very real scene back then. And, uh, you know, like I tell said, them, go ahead. Tell about the, the – I tell this story all the time. So you had a couple platforms that were 600-pound deadlifters. Oh, deadlifter, yeah. Three or four that were 700, then you had two two were 800-pound deadlifted platforms, right? Well, no, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, that's that's a little 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 bit exaggerated. No, we had four right. we had four platforms in the main room, and okay. the first platform would be like for I don't know, like maybe there would be some women or something show up that they some competitive lifters. Ellen Ellen Chalet was a very good competitive lifter. I think she was yeah. like. A 325, 350 deadlifter. Yeah, so that, legit, man. yeah she was. And she, Did beautiful. she train like Mark? No, no, she was so, she a real athlete. Mark was just a genetic wonder. <laughs> uh, so, but then on on the wooden platforms, and the one would be the guys up to uh, 550, right? And that's right. where the that's where the little guys like Larry, Chris. You know, Larry was my training partner for many years. At 148, uh, he took second several times at the World Masters World Championships and was a multi-time national champion at 148. A 148-pound guy with a, you know, 300-plus raw bench. You know, he's strong guys, right? Yeah. So that would be the 550 platform. Then you'd have the 550 to 700 platform, right? And then the main platform, which was the elevated platform, would be the over 700. If you pulled over 700, you could throw in on that. And we usually had a hack. I, I, I just read an article on this. And one, you know, it was a typical day. Um, we had 14 guys that had pulled 700 in competition that showed up in one, one day. You know, and just guys from the neighborhood. It was, you know, my, I mean, I could almost name them myself, Mark. Mark's brother Ray, uh, Jeff Bobaluch, uh, Frank Hottendorf in Baltimore, uh, Marshall Peck, Joe Ferry, uh, who else? Frank Nectar for sure. 
uh, Joe Pavanelli, uh, you know, I mean, it's just on and on it goes. And these are just, you know, guys in the neighborhood who belong to the gym. And there's 14 guys in the room that I'm counting that have pulled over 700. Great. Was there, yeah, and that was, <clears throat> Marty, was there guys that came from, you know, different areas to come in and, and lift with you guys and experience? Yeah, all peri- yeah, yeah, sure. Periodically on the weekends, yeah. you'd have Bob Brandon come up from uh, Richmond. Great, great lifter. You'd have guys come down from New York and New Haven, West Haven uh, on the weekends. But normally, <clears throat> normally it was just the local guys because we trained on Monday and Thursday. Right, that yeah. kind of cuts out the, you know, the the yeah. tour, the tourists, the weekends. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the weekend guys would come in and market. Hey, hey, you know. But the real work, and again, you had to be in season. The seasons were before the nationals and the worlds, so you had twelve right. weeks. Twelve weeks, twenty-four weeks. You're in meat prep. The other, what, it's fifty-two weeks in a year. So the other, what, twenty-six weeks, you you weren't. Uh, now, most guys, you know, had a, a, a very highly constructed off season. Mark didn't. And I, I cut on Mark a little bit. You know what I mean? I make him out a little bit less than what he was. But but he just pounded home the point of how little you can do and get super damn strong. And, be, and, and how to be so mentally strong to be able to do that. I don't, I, you know, I don't know, Jimmy. I mean, he just, I mean, it's just, you've got a plan and, you know, I mean, at one point, Chalet was as weak as the rest of us. Right. No, I'm saying so. Maybe he, you know, maybe that was almost like his genius, you know, to be able to summate that power, that, you know, you know that the, mental fortitude. The, the, Olympic, the, Olymp- the Olympic lifters always talk about specificity. Right. Yeah. And they say, well, we only we only squat and uh, no, we only we, we uh, snatch and we clean and jerk and we squat and uh, front squat. And that's it right. because we want to be now they do a lot of volume, but they're doing a lot of volume with a relatively light payload. They weren't handling the payloads that Chalet was handling. No, I know. But yeah. Mark's I, I tell you this. All right. And here's the point that I made. If you had two choices, and they had, again, Occam's Razor, equal outcomes, and both workouts would give you equal results, okay? Mm-hmm. You tracking, JP? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything from you. I just want to no, make sure. No, I'm listening, still- man. You got some uh, great <laughs> info here. <laughs> I don't know. If I'll maybe notes, I know all about stuff. Occam's Razor. I love it. You've done some uh, okay. good articles on that, too. Okay, so in, uh, the Occam Razor's theorem is that if you have uh, two strategies that have equal outcomes, pick the one with simpler, less moving parts. Right. So, right. if on the all right, what do you, what do we want? We want to build incredible strength, and we want to build gargantuan muscle. That's the goal. So we have two systems that deliver that. They deliver incredible strength and gargantuan muscle one system requires 10 hours a week two five-hour sessions five times a week right five two-hour sessions you know that's reasonable and expected to get gargantuan muscle size the other one is chalets 
Which one would you pick? I get the most time. We get the mostest for the leastest, right? Yes. 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 Makes sense. Let me ask you something. What, yes. what do you what do you weighing when you first get to chalets? I mean, what are you lifting? What are you weighing? What's your goals? I'm in the one ninety eight pound class, right? Yeah, uh, weighing more than that, a little bit, but and I'm and I'm looking good and I'm feeling good. And we're you know we're handling six fifty in the squat and you know six forty in the uh, maybe six sixty in the squat, six forty in the dead. It was always a bad. I didn't start benching until I was. 25 you know we didn't bench when we were olympic lifting right. so and i have long ass arms and terrible bencher so i might have been benching i don't know 350 right uh good lifts but not great lifts and again all this stuff is raw this is all raw stuff so when you move to marks you know right from the get-go it was like a magnet every stud in 50 miles joined up. Right. So, and the, the space was beautiful. It was on the second floor of an auto parts store. It was clean and well lit, beautiful floor to ceiling windows. You had a lot of light. Most gyms are dank and dark. And, How you know, did they, that work being on the second floor though? It's interesting because it was no problem for the, for the, the regular guys, but on the main platform, Mark had done this genius thing where him and Buck, his dad, it created a, a plywood sandwich. Mm, with like foam and stuff or rubber. or They set the, the plywood platform sandwich on top of six auto tires. Oh, that's cool. And you would have thought it would have rolled around like a waterbed, right? Well, it wasn't. It was solid as hell. And you get up there, and, and when it hit, it absorbed all the the power yeah. now we weren't we weren't living over top of people who were it wasn't like an apartment complex we were living over part of a, over top of a the gym was over top of an auto parts store mm-hmm. yeah so we didn't have to be totally quiet but man i tell you what we ne- he never had complaints yeah uh, so the gym so cool. then he moved later right because the gym yes yeah, yes he yeah. did in 1989 yeah. He moved, okay. and, and that's when I see he he moved that gym right at the same time I relocated to Connecticut. So okay. it was just like I mean it was like uh, a synchronicity. So anyway, we, we, I think we've we've traveled. So I'm at Chalets now, and again, now's when I start working with Mark. He and I hit it off on a personal level, and Mark is a, a difficult personality, I guess. Um. I thought he was great. Uh, if he liked you, um, you know, it was great. Um, he was closer to me than my own brother for five years. And his family, I loved his family. I'd go over and stay over at their place, you know. Uh, now, when did when did Karwaski come into the... It was years later. I had, Kirk showed up like two or three years later. Okay. And he was a young guy. He was a kid and, in high school. Uh, yeah. And, um, obviously, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into Kirk now because I think that's onto itself. I think I'd like to finish up with Mark and I think we yeah, yeah. kind of talked this thing out here. We've been talking a while on this, but it's an interesting time period because all these top guys gravitate toward this, toward this central location. Well, I tell you who, uh, who I met there at that point in time is Rich Salk. Rich Salk, yeah. 
Yeah, Rich showed up, right? Rich was champion bodybuilder. Yeah, he was the and, best guy in the area. Yep. Well, he started coming by because he loved the vibe. Yeah. yeah. As, a, as a competitive bodybuilder, he's like, yeah, I, I need to add some size. Let me start doing some of this stuff. So we had a lot of that. Um, had a lot of pro wrestlers. John, uh, big John Studd. Big John Studd. Real name John. He was a nice person. He was a very, very nice person. Um, huge, huge guy. Tall. Yeah. He had, actually he had been a, uh, a basketball player. But he, you know how he gained weight late in life. Yeah. And eventually yeah. he died of the 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 gargantuism that he had that that killed right. him early. Well, that chalet seems like you were you were you were just real fortunate, man. You had Gonzaga for the Olympic lift, and you had Bob oh, Smith. You had you know Cassidy. You had Cassidy. Then you graduate to yeah. And then your then so were you coaching people at, at that point? Were you no, coaching? no. Uh, Mark, I, I yeah, I I started coaching Mark. Okay. Um, because he approached me. Right. I would not approach him. And he said, hey, I'd like you to be my coach. I said, OK, good. Um, you know, it's easy to coach because he only does one damn thing. But but Marty, so you guys... your, your job. But we started traveling. We started going to the Nationals with him. Right. And that was a circus, because let me tell you, when Mark Chalet went to the Nationals, he'd have 20 people traveling with him. Wow. Oh, it was cool. It was uh, it was a party. It was a you know it was it was a big deal. Now, now uh, let me ask you real quick though. You when you went there, you guys hit it off. You started planning, uh, you know, world championships and and, and setting world records. Now, was that just for him, or did you have your eye on those big lifts too and world records and things? Oh, that you I was still to? I was still competitive and. Um, you know, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I I got severely injured in 1983. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead to that yet. But no, I was uh, I was pushing my body weight up. I was I had seen the handwriting on the wall. I also were doing some training with Mark Dimidoc over to his. Um, mm-hmm. He had a uh, townhouse in Suitland, <clears throat> so yeah. working with him and Don Mills. Don was the greatest master lifter of all time. So working with Don and, and Dimiduck over there and then Mark Chalet and Mark is, you know, we're going to the nationals and Dimiduck won the worlds, won the nationals in the worlds in 1980. And that was a big damn deal because he had been, uh, he was Cassidy's number one student. And uh, let me see at 220, Mark squatted 775, benched. 485 deadlifted 775 and he was was a tall guy he was my height he was 5'9 incredible erectors incredible erectors great all around balanced lifter Uh, but a more of a volume guy more of a huge guy Um, but again Dimiduck was uh, he was a a lifting terminator for a while man he was ferocious but another difficult personality uh, and another incredible story too. He was a DC undercover undercover car, cop. He was a he was a narc in the kill zone. Oh man, some stories on him. Uh, but anyway, he Mark unfortunately died early. <clears throat> a lot of the guys checked out early. So, but swinging back to Chalet's, the momentum started happening fairly quickly. 
Mark and his family had also always run the Temple Hills Open, which was the biggest local powerlifting competition in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ran it every year. I think it was October. So, and, you know, a lot of times Mark would, would lift in that. It would be a, a you know, a tune-up. Uh, so we'd have certain local meets where we'd use as um, – you want to test where you're at leading up to a big competition. So you'll jump in and you almost take it as a workout. Yeah. Almost like a training day, train yeah. through it, right. The train through the week. That's what we used to call it. Yep. 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 But I remember on one, one time uh, we pulled, Mark pulled uh, at the Temple Hills open just on a lark. He wasn't really, he was good shape, but not great shape. And, you know, you know, on an off day, pulled, you know, 870. What? Yeah. Ridiculous. I know. Listen, there's some chickens walking Jim, around. Jim, are you out in the woods? Yeah, my dog. <laughs> my dog is walking around. Quiet, quiet. Killing, quiet. Killing animals. Quiet. <laughs> yeah, right. so anyway, so in Chile's, we ran a Chile's for another five years. We're party eventually ended and you know mark campaigned well uh mark one took second at the nationals the year that um gamble won but gamble could not go to the worlds so we ended up going to the worlds mark took second at the worlds that year uh you know the he switched over to the apf when that got started the american powerlifting federation there was a schism in powerlifting Yep. 84, 85. I was at that yeah, meeting, meeting where that happened. And uh, the American Powerlifting Federation formed and broke away from the USPF. So a bunch of bunch of lifters went to the APF, including Mark, including Ed Cohn, including Doug Furness, including George Hector. All the heavyweight lifters shifted over to the APF. So we started working that circuit. And, um, again, you, the, the things that you learn when you're working with the Uber elite and it's not, yeah. it's not so much the sets and the reps, Jim, you know, it's more yeah. how they approach the workout, how they pace the workout, how they, how they, the, they approach the warmups with the same respect that they approach the top set. Right. All right. These are the things that you pick up from working with, you know, national world champions, world record holders. And it's like, how the little they, things, the yeah. little things, yeah. right? Uh, obviously, they have the physiques, but the physiques are a result of the work. Yeah. All right. What's amazing is how thick Chalet could get to in singles. Why, why does you that know, surprise that, you, Jimmy? He's pulling a fifty single. Yeah, so what what it is is all it's all about the poundage the sheer No, that's bodybuilding shit. There's no way he can he can you know get hypertrophy or you know a, he yeah, just kind of goes it, against everything we're taught about like that. A, he wasn't born like that. Yeah, I know, but he responded. You know, no, 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 you take a regular person, no way they get they get that thick. He was he had big biceps, he didn't even do his arms. 
All right, now, I've got to have, are you into that moonshine whiskey out there in the duck country? Because you know you're you're talking whack here. That's not true. I only had a little bit. All right, yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, Talk about I how he pushed his I weight think, up. I think I think that's a total myth that you cannot build hypertrophy doing singles. I, I I'd like to use I'd like to use a classical phrase here, but I'm I yeah, you know our sponsors don't allow it. Uh, <laughs> no, they don't. Well, Karwaski kind of did the same thing, though. Look how thick he uh, got. Oh, no, no, no. was a rep guy. But I'm telling you, yeah. Jim, that if you get strong and you just okay, you just work singles and you work that single up and up and up and up and up and up, you will build a body. I'm telling okay. you. I don't care if it flies in the space of science. I know what I've seen. And I've seen guys, because every Dumbo that came into Mark's gym, Mark made him train that way. We had a lot of case studies to go by. Yeah. Now, would I train a guy coming into the gym that way? No. Now, wait a minute. Did most of the guys coming in that got converted to that training style, did they all make equal results, you know, equal improvements? Or no. was it... No one does. Chalet just... You know, he was just so genetically gifted and was perfect for that kind of training. No, I think that, that I mean, we had, um, oh, Hank. I mean, there was a bunch of, Mark always had a a protege, a sidekick, a guy, you know, or number two guy. I was different. I was Marty. I was the coach. I was older. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was different. But Mark always had a number two guy. And that guy always had a seven plus deadlift. Yeah. Mark's brother had a 700 deadlift and Ray, I don't think Ray trained five times a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that was coming to do a, a single. And I'm just, you know, I, I anyway, I don't want to get too Was Mark up. a big psyker? Yeah. Yeah. He was a very good psyker. Was he, what was his technique? Uh, you'd have to see it, man. It was just like, imagine a Viking berserker, Eye uh, on some sort of hallucinogen, naked, smashing his axe on a shield. So he used the smelling salts. Did he use the board or uh, bash his head uh, on the board? Nah, I didn't need no damn board, but I tell you what, uh, he was effing ferocious mm-hmm. and okay. he was scary. And I saw him grab a guy one time, and that guy got flung like he'd been thrown by a silverback ape. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Into a wall, <laughs> crumpled down, and Marsh like, "There you go, punk." And next, and you know, it was just, and it was just that easy because he was that much stronger. He had huge hands, long arms, the freakiest, widest shoulders I've ever seen in a human that height in my life to this day. Um. Thick bones, eight and a quarter inch wrist, you know, and a huge head. And he was built to lift stuff. Built for it, yeah. Uh, now, he, unfortunately, for, I think that Mark never achieved his full potential. I think that if he had had a serious work ethic, uh, he could have been twice as good. But uh, God bless him for teaching us what, you know, the, the, the incredible possibilities of ultra minimalism. You can't get any more minimalistic than Mark. How how was his diet though? Since he was so minimalistic in his training, he was he was not a stuffer. He was not an eater. He was not a pig. He was 
he, I don't want to say he was picky, but he was just, he was just okay about it. You how know many what I mean? ice cream, <clears throat> how many ice cream sandwiches oh, no, would that, this guy that was funny. Yeah, he had this one. Thing. Oh, yeah. He was pushing up. He was trying to push up from 242 to 275. I said, what'd you do? He said, um, he said you know, uh, ice cream sandwiches, uh, when you, you get them at Walmart, they come 24 in a giant box. He said, you eat one of those a day, and you do that for uh, 20, 28 straight days. And it pushed his body weight up 25 pounds. That was that was good. Danny Wobler told me one time he ate twenty three Big Macs a day. <laughs> what? He worked at McDonald's. No kidding, he was eating, he was he was flipping burgers and eating them on the side. Back then, Big Macs were bigger too. <laughs> twenty three a day. Burger. I was like, why not twenty two or twenty four? Why twenty three? He said twenty three worked, Marty. But yeah, see what the elite are willing. See what the elite are willing to do and what they have to do to become the elite. Well, we I mean, were pretty, we were pretty stupid back in the seventies. Now, come on, man, we didn't even have we didn't have nutritional breakdown labels on food. We didn't know what we were eating. Well, we right, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, I mean, all that a Big Mac had whatever eight hundred grams of fat. We didn't. You know guys that. were you guys were all in on everything. I mean, you just had to like. Yeah, they just knew. They just knew that they needed the calories, and hell, there's some beef in there too. Let's go, man. Uh, and again, we didn't have uh, the intelligent conversations about nutrition that have happened in the subsequent years. Yeah. You know, I, I could not, I could not, in good conscience, recommend that kind of nutritional approach to anyone under other than like a you know fanatical. No, but you, know, you guys were pioneers back then. I mean, yeah, well, fun, this is all uncharted territory, really. Well, I think it's lost. I don't think anybody does this today, Jim. Do you? I don't hear much about it. I don't, I don't hear much about that, but I, I do yeah. see like I see a little bit about the strongman guys and they're walking through the grocery stores and they've got two shopping carts and their wives are bitching. Oh, I can't wait till he retires. Uh, this is so horrible. We spend four hundred dollars every third day. Yeah, you know, I've had that conversation. You know, and he eats rice and beef, and he, you know, I've got to eat seven thousand calories today, and it's like, come on, man. Get a life. Go get a job. <laughs> they have a job. Strong man, right? Eating. Yeah, well, that's also a quick way to end up in uh, permanent early retirement. Well, there's no question. I mean, you have to look at it. You know, first of all, when you're young, you don't even think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It might not be crazy when you're young. Yes, no, absolutely. All, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, when you hit forty, weight, when you hit forty, dude, you got to got to change your role. Yeah, there's no question. I, I noticed that you guys. I think you guys saw the same thing. I mean, you hit forty and you just start thinking about longevity. It's like you know, I just want to be able to walk and be healthy and and all that. So you really start thinking about things a lot differently. But you're right. When you're young, you're invincible. You know, ten thousand calories, lifting heavier each day, and there's. You know, in your mind, there's the, you're always going to be like that, and you're unstoppable. That's my goal for the new year. Huh? That's my goal for the new year. No, you just want to be a better version of your current self. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what we all, all got to kind of do. We're going on a blitzkrieg January 1st, right, Jim? That's right. But, JP, aren't you still close to 300? No, you know, I haven't weighed myself in a little bit, but uh, I've uh, 
I think I'm Here's... around 280. Two, so I'm, you know, I'm six foot. I've been lifting since I'm 15, and I was always yeah. a heavy lifter. I didn't do what you guys mm-hmm. were doing. I wasn't competing in powerlifting or anything. So I kind of was doing power building. You know, I always enjoyed the real heavy weights. I loved to squat. I loved to deadlift. I loved to. I was never a good. I was like Marty. I was never a, a great bencher. But my back and my legs got as strong as you know. The sky w- was the limit for that. You know, if I wanted yeah. to hit a certain weight or whatever genetically i could do it now the bench was a different story for me so but yeah yeah, so i'm 48 now and i just try to go in i'm still lifting heavy as i can but i'm very very careful i use a lot of uh intensity amplifiers like marty's always talking about i just full range of motion nice and slow squeeze embrace the negative down slow you know, so I'm I'm trying to do that stuff for eight or ten reps, and if I do that, I stay healthy. And go to go to ten, stop it at eight. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm not doing tens on every single one, but I I, I sometimes get into that that high of uh, a rep range. But uh, is that what you're doing? You go max eight. Well, I'm just saying that Jim Jim would have you do what thirties. What are you doing? Jim? <laughs> Well, uh, I run the gamut, brother. I run the gamut. Maybe I do ones. <laughs> you know what? I, the thing I've been doing lately is I'll go and and uh, there'll be a pin, you know, and, and let's say I'm doing uh, machine preacher curl, and I'll say, okay, I got to do 120 reps with the weight that's on there. Oh. So I get to like 40 and be a failure, and then you know count to 30, and then do another 10, and count to you know count again, and do another 10, like a bunch of rest balls to get to get the 120 or something like that just changing oh, it up you should yeah you should definitely be, up. you should definitely Take be up. jimmy you should definitely be institutionalized <laughs> yeah that's wrong. You gotta go to the that's wrong that's sick 120 See, I, reps i, I, I get skinny me? if i do that i don't I, do that i don't do that many reps in a month you, yeah i you can't don't get skinny from the training man you get skinny from not not the prop, you know, not having the proper food, man. <clears throat> Ice cream sandwiches. That's not going to make you skinny. If I'm taking you to failure like no. that over and over, no, again, no, no. nothing to do. Like with it. You got cardio and diet, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. don't get yeah. the growth from that. Well, right. so you know, next time I see you, I'll take you Excuse me, at two eighty, you don't need any more growth. <laughs> well, you know what. Come on now. You always look in the mirror and go, yeah, my arms need to be a little bit bigger and <clears throat> chest needs to grow a little bit. It's like it's like Arnold said, you know, it's like you're a, a sculptor and you're adding some clay here and there. You're adding some, you know, add to your biceps and all that. You 700 steps a week. Yeah, now that that's would... Arnold. That's crazy. You should have told Chalet to do that and see what he said. <laughs> it's a perfect imagine? example would you rather follow chalet's routine or, or you would have been uh, that guy that ended up through the wall right nah, no no it's, no but we've talked about that i wonder if arnold would have done like more of a minimalistic approach if the, his results would have been the same or different or you know but who knows yeah obviously you know what, what he did theory. worked very well and Mentor's theory about Arnold was he built all his bulk and, and muscle size 
in the early years when he was doing the deadlifts, when he was doing heavy fives, when he was right. doing all that. And when then, he was the Austrian powerlifting champion. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and he would just trim that trim that down and do some high reps before before the uh the show that, that he wasn't really growing at that point, that he was just sort of um, you know, defining yeah. what he had. That's a that's a, that's good. I like that. You, you know, yeah, that's how Coleman started too. All the huge guys started. Ronnie was a different. Ronnie was a different. He was different. Uh, first off, Ronnie was an elite athlete. Yeah, football I mean, player. He played. Right? Yeah, well, many, 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 many different ways. Yeah. Uh, and also, Ron was one of the world's greatest drug-free bodybuilders before he went nuclear. Before he got the word. Well, I mean, before he decided, you know, either I'm going to compete with these guys or I'm just going to be satisfied with being the best amateur bodybuilder in the world. Well, you know what? You could take a look at him in the early days and just look at his shape and his muscle mass and and go, you know what? That guy's going to be one of the greatest one days, one one day if he uh, if he pursues it, you know, and keeps going. Yeah, he was like he was like an NFL defensive end. You mm-hmm. see those guys, they're, they're like Coleman-esque, except, you know, they're a little taller. But that, that, that uh, you know, you got 18-inch arms and you don't do shit for them, that kind of thing. I've always, you know, I've been around guys like that, man. It's just like, it's frustrating in a way, but usually they don't have the kind of work ethic no. that someone like Coleman has. You know? No, 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 no. And, and I remember one time we were at the Night of Champions. He wasn't even competing. He was there and... Uh, I think Stacy was with me, and I asked him. I said, uh, sh- "I said, just uh, Stacy, your arm." He would flex his arm in such a way. And this is this is back before he got really big. He was still, I don't know, I'm thinking like two ten or two twenty, maybe. Yeah. He, he would flex his arm in such a way that it was like a two stage thing. It'd be like first the first bicep would appear, and then he'd hit it again, and then that second. <laughs> yeah, you'd first see that. The the yeah. inner head of the yeah. bicep, yes, and then yes, bam, yes. and then the then, outer head yeah. would create that peak. Oh, that was just incredible. massive, yeah. Yep, like a split. Boyer Boyer Co had that too, but not like big as Ronnie for sure. Freddie Ortiz had it. Arnold Arnold had it for sure. Uh, yeah, that's a very rare thing. But uh, Coleman had it right from the. He had what they yeah. in the day they call it pro arms. You got to have pro arms. And, and Ronnie, Ronnie had that right from the, right from the get go, uh, and he got the you know when he when he got informed by Lavroni and Sean Ray and the rest of the guys, it was just such an easy thing for him to just become gargantuan. He'd already done all the hard work. Marty, let me ask you something. If out of all the power lifters that you've lifted with and coached and all that, had one of them turned? into a bodybuilder who do you think would have had the best physique out there if they would have went from powerlifting to bodybuilding who had the best physique i refuse to answer come on man answer no, the question man, I don't, I, come it's on because i, I would not man, jim jim Cash i would not wish unbelievable yeah well a lot of people say kirk no way! Come on, you know why do we have to turn? Why I'm do not turning it. I'm just, oh, I'm just doing a quick bus stop here. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> bus stop, right? Uh, We're talking about Marty. gumpisms, right? So uh, name your name your 
other three, then, if you can't pick one? Well, I would say Dave Jacoby with his freaky wide yeah. shoulders and tiny waist and big legs. Yeah. and I can't remember his arms. I don't think his arms were anything. Um, you know, I don't know. Who else? Gamble. Gamble, but Gamble had... Gamble was, oh, yeah, was, Gamble was weird. He was so muscular, but he had, like, these incredible tiny calves. Right? <laughs> they were like, there was, like, nothing there. And it was like, wow. So it was... It was strange because he had giant legs his upper body was incredible yeah uh, that's what I mean, all power lifters were deficient in in some most power lifters can't have a small waist because small waist is not good for leverage you see very right. very few small waisted people in 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 lifting because you want that first of all you want a short waist secondly you want a thick waist Right, because of of, yeah. of what you have to do. So I, I, you know, I don't want to say it's a ridiculous question, but I just think it's <laughs> maybe you should say, what bodybuilders would stand a chance of becoming powerlifters, Marty? And it would go like, well, Dorian, Ronnie, and yeah, nobody. No, that's no, that's good. Franco, now, Franco. Now, Jim, Franco. now, Jim, you've Franco. done both. And and you, you, know, Arnold, you know, Arnold had a seven hundred deadlift. He did, did, yeah. He can get into the bar, and that I I will eternally respect him for that. I mean, that's that's a real lift. Seven hundred. That's separate. I mean, he could come to the the fabled uh, mystery bar, right, Jim? Yeah, the bar in the front, Jim in the back. Yeah, do that. (laughs) We only get entrance to the back if you pulled seven (laughs) hundred. Jim, did you start out anything? Jim, did you start out powerlifting or bodybuilding? Because you've done well in both. training for football i mean i started at the same time so so we bodybuilt it but it was also you know i was training for football so you had the mix of the high reps and the lower reps and stuff like that all right well you try um, you so you were trying to gain strength and also gain yeah, weight just, at the same time i trained for basically i trained for football forever and then when i got done with football that's when i uh, started doing some power and stuff i didn't okay. know anything about it and you you don't unless you're in a situation like where Marty is. You know, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, coaching, and I saw a powerlift in USA. And I've been reading these glossy, you know, magazines, and I was like, "What is this shit?" You know, it's all these results and all that. And then you start getting into it, yeah. and you see the little gems in there. And you, and then I got that video of Kirk squatting, and I was like, "Well, man, I think 600's great." He just did 800 for five. I got to get on the spit. <laughs> You know? But you built your foundation through strength training, uh, powerlifting, and then you transitioned into bodybuilding, which I think you kind of like more because it's less wear and tear on your body, and um, you know, and you've, ver- you've well, done very JP, well. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you. If I could still compete in powerlifting, I would do it. Yeah. But I, I have to compete in something. And- yeah. And, 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 none of this other stuff's going to happen. And you can compete right. in lifting and not destroy yourself. Yeah, I would say you've got to be you've got to, you, you you you've got to be realistic in your self assessment. Oh yeah, see, I don't want to do that. I'm, if I ain't squatting over eight hundred, I'm not, I'm not doing it, bro. I'm yeah, well, then, then never lift again, my friend. That's my advice to you. I, uh, no, dare, I'm saying as far as, my, you know what my new strategy is: dare to be uh, weak. Dare to be weak. Well, see, you got a good thing. So you competed a few years ago. You did no belt. You did the, de- you know what I mean. So you did it differently than you had done it before. It was a new kind of goal. Well, even now, 
it's like, why can't I kick ass for my particular demographic? Yeah. Are you going to compete again? I don't know. I'll see. <clears throat> Mike, I ain't going to rule it out. So you I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Yeah. If, if I do, that's going to be bad news for, my, for some other 70 year olds. Right. Oh, I would say. So you're 70, you're turning 70 or you're 70 now. No, 70 in April. Okay. So you well, could very well come along. We don't have a party. You, you could probably break some, some records if you compete at 70, if you train for it. I can break a lot of shit. Excuse me. What's your, yeah. What are you doing on the squat right now? I, I, I prefer not to mention that, okay? Oh, in case my say. competitors are listening. Now, we should... All right. Let's switch here. Come on, man. Come on. We've spent, been here okay. doing this for... Well, we've been, uh, we wanted to really cover Chalet today. There's so much with Chalet. I mean, there's, there's more to get to. I mean, you want to talk a little bit more about him or you want to pick up next time on Chalet? Yeah, because we've got to finish out the decade. This takes us a bit yeah, about a go to Kirk Yeah, we got Kirk, Kirk enters Chalets and Ed Cohn and Furness and me, you know, my injury. We've got a lot of, a lot of stuff yet to, yet to go through. But, again, we don't want to overwhelm people with it. And we just want to give yeah. it to them and snip it. All right. Why don't we continue yeah. part three with Chalet. We'll pick back up with Chalet. And then we'll go forward to that because there's still a lot of good stuff to get to. Tons. And you, you know what I'm uh, I'm really amazed by is your mind is like a steel trap for all this stuff. How you yeah. remember all these numbers and because crazy I'm a things like that. Writer. As a, I'm a trained professional writer. That's what we do. We have photogenic all stuff. for stuff that is important to us. Now, my wife thinks I'm a moron. Because any anything that is important to her, I don't care about. She says, uh, Marty, it's uh, trash day. Can you take the trash out, right? I'm like, oh, what day is it, Stacy? Is it Thursday? She goes, no, man, it's Monday. We're, what is well, wrong with you? Let, let me ask you this real quick. Do you, because, you know, I edit all your articles when they come over and post them and all that, and I'm looking at all these numbers. I go, how does he remember that? Do you occasionally have to brush up on these numbers and body weights and things? So you just never. sit there and write, no matter who it is, and you remember this yeah. stuff just like that. Never done a single footnote. I don't research anything. Man, that's crazy. That's right. And what it, you know, a lot of it is everything you do and everything you see and all the situations you look at it as a writer. You know, like oh, that's a story. Oh, this could be something. Also, you know also, what I mean? also from my own, uh, I'm on a quest, man. I mean, my goal is to improve. My body. I mean, <clears throat> I am blessed with this incredible. I'm like Keith Richards or Cher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're right. Comparison to Cher. I got. I got. You're like uh, Cher. Jesus has given me the you know the body that is indestructible, and I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to 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 you know hit it. I'm coming off a very good winter. I'm strong. I'm fit. I got no injuries. I feel good. And now it's like, all right, let's shift gears. Let's, uh, you know, clean up the content, you know, nutritionally, right? <clears throat> Talk to Rich Salt a little bit, right? Yeah. Get serious. And, you know, uh, Cher, was, Cher was okay when she was with Sonny, but when she got older, everybody thought she was hot. She had zero butt whatsoever. I mean, it was just totally flat. Didn't do that. Yeah. Okay. 
We well, can always tell, we can always tell Jimmy when you've like tipped into the moonshine a little bit too much. The lack of shares, but what was that song? Cherokee people. Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. This is getting crazy. Um, in addition to just, I'm just amazed at all these numbers that you can you can remember. But you're a 70 year old guy. You're a 70 year old guy, but you you're up at like three or four a.m. And and I asked you, how do you continue to do that? You go, man, I wake up fired up every day. You're so passionate about weightlifting and, and, you know, nutrition and, you know, all the things you've done and just writing in, in general and all this stuff. That's pretty incredible. Well, I get to take naps, too. You know what I mean? I mean, that's... <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I know. We have to call it a certain time. Otherwise, you're in a little nap. And we'll get right. reprimanded. I take a nap every day, man. I take a nap. No question. You take a nap, know. it's like a new day. It's like exactly. a new day when you wake Exactly. Up. Get up, get some caffeine, boom. You got your yep. second. You got, I have 14 days a week. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I do. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah, you do two a day. I'm up at 3.30 or 4 till uh, probably passed out about 11.30, 45 minutes, boom, wake up, strong coffee. That's when I do my rewrites. I do my creative writing in the morning. I do my rewrites, good writings in the rewriting in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, you got a review? You got a review of anything? Now you go first. That gives me time to think. Well, before we got on, we were talking about. I was telling y'all where I am right now. I'm sitting at my buddy's farm. Oh yeah. Goose hunted with my son all morning. He's still out there in the blind, and I came in a truck to do this. Now I'm gonna go back out again and see if we can't get something. But we were talking about what's your uh, what's your firearm of choice there. Oh, I like a Remington 870. 870. You know, That's like the classic shotgun, right? Yeah, it is, and it's it's adorable. And uh, this is a you know, five-shot automatic. It's a three-shot pump. Three-shot pump. Okay. Well, you gotta ha- you gotta have the yeah. plug-in out there when you're hunting, right? You yeah, everybody has to have it. In. So three-shot maximum. Yeah. Now, when snow geese come, you're allowed to take the plug out because they want to get rid of the snow geese. There's so many, and they pull the roots up. The geese just eat the seeds and stuff like that. Snow geese actually decimate the field, so they they want. Are they food. edible? Oh yeah, they're a little they're a little earthy, so you mm. put it in more like a gumbo or a stew kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, they they taste like dirt a little bit, but you know the, the Canada's taste pretty good. But we were talking about before why it appeals to me so much, and there's two things I would. You know, it's lifting and and hunting. If you if you said I got to take everything else away, and you got two things, that would be it. I mean, there's no question. And I think they're they're both very similar. And especially when you know, Marty talks about the minimalism and all that, and it's as minimalistic as you can get. And I'm trying to get back to as much primal, um, as many primal things as I can, or what I think we're meant to do as, as human. It's not to sit in a cubicle. It's not to sit in the house. It's to get outside, and, and, you know, my son's 13. He can look at any bird in the sky and tell you what it is. I think there's something to that. You know, I, I think there's something to him being able to be out there at 13 by himself in a goose blind. I don't have one worry about him, you know what I mean, uh, where you take most 13-year-olds, and they're like, uh, i got to take a break for, you know, from my video game to, you know, go look at Instagram. And you, you, know, would, I think- and you would never leave him alone with a firearm. 
uh, right now? Well, I'm saying oh, if, you mean if, if a regular 13-year-old, you'd oh, never no leave question. But, no but, your, but your boy has so many years, even though he's only yeah. 13, yeah. he's got a lot of years under his belt. Yeah, he started coming out here at this same farm when he was four. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, man. You can't. Yeah. So the Hindus have a saying, the happiest man connects the morning of his life to the evening. Right. And that's what we're doing with our lifting. Maybe you can do that with this this hunting thing with him. What if he carries this on the rest of his life? Can you imagine how good of a hunter he's going to be by the end? Right. It'd be mind blowing right. because he's got yeah. a tremendous head start. You know, yeah, well, I, I fourth I, in the world in goose calling. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there you go. Right. That's it. But that's just another. Uh, I love the Alaska shows. I am addicted to all this. Yeah. And again, it's yeah. just and, and my favorite. My favorite. One to the guys who have the least. My favorite is that that guy Glenn that was on. Um, Glenn, he was on uh, Rogan, right? Rogan, yeah, he was on Rogan. He yeah. doesn't even have a chainsaw. You know what I mean? He's got a rifle and an axe, and if he needs firewood, he's got to go out and cut it down with a damn axe. And somehow that just appeals to me mightily. And again, what the hunting, the strength. You know, what is it? The lifting is a means to an end. The ends is strength. Right. As humans, we want to be strong. Strong is many things. One of them is resiliency, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When we're strong, we're able to bounce back from, well, first off, we're we're less susceptible to illness. Right. And injury. And injury. And, And when we do get those things, we bounce back better. Weak people do not rebound well from sickness and injury. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we want to be strong. We want to be primal. I think this whole thing about the nutrition ties in, too. I mean, again, it's like uh, we, we do a lot. I call it gourmet peasant cooking. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. We're we're taking like I when you tell me about these these geese and ducks you shoot, I'm mm-hmm. like. How do I get one of these? <laughs> I want to look at, you know, and I'm like, okay, now what would I do? All right. Well, we'd, yeah. part, we'd part it out. Now we want to do the breast. We'll do the, we'll do the breast skin side down in the skillet with some olive oil very slowly, but the rest of it, maybe we'll put it in a Dutch. You know what I mean? It, yeah. I, I just, I get fired up when I get exposed to those powerhouse natural ingredients which ties into you know kill your food prep your food eat your food get stronger you know it's all kind of a big globular thing right although in california you probably don't have a lot of that jp no i don't but uh i was just gonna say marty now you're not a hunter but you go to all the different local places like the uh i don't have but all my neighbors do it for me. Yeah, so it's all you're, here. you're eating everything local and getting all the the most nutritious uh, food out there: vegetables, meats. Right, right now, you still, get that, you still get the beef from the Mennonite farm. Uh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but you've got to be careful because not all, all organic is tender. Um, right. Apparently, a lot of farm animals have lived tough lives. <laughs> we know because we've got some tough organic local 
me, which should have been perfect, but it's not. You prep it correctly, and it's tough. It's it's not your fault. It's, so the, the place that you go is the, is the same place where you said, now, uh, be on your best behavior. Don't say anything crazy to these people. Well, to me. That's what you yeah, said you're, to me. You're trying to. Be nice right. to the girls and all yeah, that. Like, what do you think I am, man? What do you think I am? You're not supposed to try to hustle fundamentalists, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the bonnet. I love the bonnet. <laughs> Kurt, all right, all right, all right, all right. We got to wrap this up. All right. All all right. right. <clears throat> yeah, let's wrap it up here. <clears throat> we'll continue with part three next time. So, uh, in the meantime, check out Marty's weekly column and podcast, Raw with Marty Gallagher at ironcompany.com. Also pick up one of Marty's books, Purposeful Primitive or Strong Medicine at Iron Company. Also visit Iron Company for all your gym equipment and flooring needs. Uh, we can help you with anything. You want to brand anything from uh, you know your, your lifting platforms to your urethane dumbbells. Uh, check us out. We've got everything you need for lifting, free weights. We've got good, uh, great selection of cardio, all that good stuff. We'll treat you right and help you out. Selling... Uh tool jp what what, what's moving the most right now man we you know being iron company we do a lot of free weights do a lot of uh Mm -hmm. solid steel urethane dumbbells uh, a lot of good power bars you know we've got the karwaski approved power bar on there that you guys uh lift with over there at the pole barn we've got some really good olympic bars that we bring in um and you know a whole lot of strength equipment like uh racks and you know half racks and and full power racks and things like that so we've got it all we we do a lot in flooring too you know any type of flooring you need rolls mats anything we've got that um and finally we've got jim steel articles they can be found at iron company in our articles section as well we've got jim doing a uh, a monthly, um, he's, we're publishing monthly articles from him. So go on there. You can also check out Jim, you're doing uh, a lot of articles at bassbarbell.com. Are you posting one a week? I see a lot of stuff going up, uh, over there. Yes. I'm writing. I write for myself, which is that. And then I write for you. Yeah. And then I've been doing some start, a uh, couple uh, articles on starting strength recently. Yeah, so, uh, and you're you're writing about life and lifting and just, you know, it's not just about lifting or nutrition, but it's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so, on the Boss Barber, I write about everything, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, good deal. Usually next... somebody who ir- irritated me. <laughs> <laughs> so next week we do uh, Forrest Gump Part 3. Yeah. Can't yeah. wait, man. It's, it's great. All right. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.